Good morning. Blessings from uh, Stockton. Anyone ever heard of that? You have? Okay. It's that obscure town that you drive through when you're going north on the I-5. You can't avoid it. Um, okay, so what I want to do is I want to just share a little bit what's going on in uh, the church family in Stockton, your guys' brothers and sisters up there. Just two brief uh, stories. Um, this, this holiday season, the staff got together and really prayed and considered ways that we as a church could help bless the community at large. And uh, we ended up partnering with an organization called the uh, Teen 180 or 180 Teen Center that helps underprivileged youth. And what we did was we sponsored a bunch of kids that we, we got the, the name tags for these kids and we put it on a, a Christmas tree quite like this in our lobby. And everyone was supposed to take one, but we, we got a grip. I mean, a lot of kids' tags, and it made me really nervous because I knew that if families don't take those tags, we're on the hook for all of those names. And uh, so the first Sunday we put them out, um, I was the last one leaving. I was about to go out the door. Remembered I hadn't grabbed a tag personally for our family. I go, there's one left for our family. So just praise God for the generosity he stirred in, in the church family there to go beyond just the, the church. Also, the, the uh, Reality Church helped uh, launch a ministry, helped in cooperating with uh, launching a ministry called Showered with Love. Uh, it's a bus that was converted into uh, multi-stall showers uh, for individuals that don't have the ability to, to get a shower, a clean shower, and, and shave. And uh, it's really based on the premise that we're all created in the image of God, and therefore all intrinsically have human dignity uh, because of God's creation. And this helps people that maybe haven't felt that dignity in a long time. So that's just a snapshot of what God is doing in, in the family up there. This morning, I get the privilege, privilege of continuing your guys' Advent series. And what I want to do is I want to ask you to turn to Isaiah 64, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. And uh, as you're turning there, what I'd like to ask you to, to do, if you're able, is to please stand to your feet for the reading and proclaiming of God's word. In Stockton, after the, read, uh, the word is read, typically the reader will say, this is the word of the Lord, and then the church responds, thanks be to God. That's, that's, your only, that's all you have to say today, thanks be to God. So you, you got to get that one right, okay? <laughs> Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, as the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our, our potter. We're all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not your iniquity forever. Behold, please, look, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And uh, th this line pops out at me this morning, that there was no one who called upon your name and who roused himself to take hold of you. And this morning, what we want to acknowledge together today is if we lack the desire to call out, to pray, to seek you, to lay hold of you, Lord, that you're not calling us to look inside and, and dig deep to rouse ourselves, but to turn to you 
for your energy, for your motivation, for your compelling love to rouse us to turn to you. In faith, we ask for faith. As the Father famously cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, would you rouse our hearts, Lord, to lay hold by hope to Jesus Christ today. We, we want to acknowledge we're weak, we're foolish, we're fickle. We've been, we've been looking to and reaching out to a number of things this week, and likely those things were not you. And so would, would you turn our attention once again to your love, Lord, to your kindness, to your presence, If we don't have the strength to reach out to you, Lord, we thank you that you reach out to us. We love because you first loved us. By your Holy Spirit, would you pour out the Father's love into our hearts today? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Okay, so we are deep in the Christmas season. And you are likely, if you have not already, to hear one of the most famous Christmas songs ever, Joy to the World. Uh, my kids and I, uh, I, was, I drove down here yesterday with two of my kids, and I introduced them to the wonderful world of Mariah Carey Christmas. <laughs> Deluxe version with like 39 tracks, like, you know, you heard it once, now you're going to hear it live. And Sure enough, Joy to the World with that dramatic beginning, and then the choir comes in. We all, I also introduced them to Kenny G Christmas. Now, someone came up to me after first service and told me that they are not a Kenny G uh, fan, so Dom, they're sitting in the camp right now. I don't know. That's, that's not good for your church, guys. Trust me. I don't know who you are, but you got you to gotta have mad respect for Kenny G. And sure enough, Joy to the World tracked on there. So uh, Joy to the World begins like this. Joy to the World... The Lord is come, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. What I want to do today is I want to consider this first statement, the Lord is come. And and I really believe that this statement, the Lord is come, which by the way is the title of this morning's message, really embodies and encompasses the heart of Advent. And I feel that it's fitting to describe Advent because this, this phrase is sort of puzzling. The Lord is come. It's grammatically vague. The Lord is come. Uh, does that mean he has come or he is coming? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I see what you did there. But like, does it mean he has come or he's going to come? And the answer is yes, both. The Lord is come. Advent is the season that reorients our hearts and our minds to where we are in the unfolding drama of God's redemption. God came through Jesus Christ incarnate through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and yet Jesus Christ is coming again to right every wrong, to judge the living and the dead, to raise us to everlasting And there we are in the middle. Listen to how one author put it. We are living between the hallelujah, can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. Of Christ's resurrection and the maranatha of Christ's return. I realize the church knows how to, to say their hallelujah, but sometimes we're not really sure how to say our maranatha. Because we forget where we are in the story. And Advent reminds us, it reorients where we are. We're right smack dab in the middle. The Lord has come down and the Lord is coming again. But like the pattern that's demonstrated for us here in Isaiah 64, Advent begins by looking forward in anticipation and expectation and then by looking back to the incarnation. It does this sort of counterintuitive thing. Traditionally, Advent spends the first two weekends Uh, first two Sundays of Advent, looking forward to Christ's return, and then, in remembrance, looking back to the birth narrative. This is important because the temptation that we have as believers that study scriptures that were penned in the past is to simply view God stuck in the past. 
In fact, what we, we typically, how we typically describe reading the scriptures is reflecting on the scriptures. It's retrospective. He did this and he did that and there he is. There is God standing somewhere in the past. And so the challenge of faith is to see that God who did such great things in the past is actually with us in the present. God is with us in the present. And oftentimes that faith is challenged by what we actually see around us, by what we perceive around us. And what Isaiah's prayer gives us the honesty to do is to acknowledge that we've heard and we've seen God, all of his unrivaled acts in the past, and yet we look around and our experience is something very different. We look around and we see darkness. We look around and we see evil. We look around and we see brokenness. And it appears to us as well that God has hidden his face from us, that he is absent, that he has given up on this whole like human experiment, and he's done so. He just bounced a long time ago. And yet faith is called upon to acknowledge that he is here with us, Emmanuel, God with us. The season of Advent is not just about faith, it's actually about hope, and hope is summoned as well. See, hope stretches us even beyond the here and now to see that the God of history, the God of the here and now, that eternal God is actually ruling and reigning from the future, and not just some vague concept, an abstract concept of the future, but your future. Your future. Consider this with me. If God is eternal then he not only is speaking to us from the past, he is speaking to us from the future. A future of life, a future of freedom, a future of justice, a future of peace, a future where there is no sin, no pain, no strife, no tears, no shame, and no death, and no cancer. God. God calls us to lift our eyes to see beyond the horizon of our own experience to peer into a future that's not here yet. And to see not only God there, but to see ourselves there. That's what Paul seems to be doing throughout the New Testament, to see ourselves hidden with Christ in the heavenly places. You're here, but you're seated I remember as a young boy, my dad, uh, on the Saturday of daylight savings, would go throughout the entire house and change all of the analog clocks. This was before clocks did this themselves. And he wouldn't wait till nighttime. He would do it in the afternoon. And I remember all my friends, especially if I stay with friends over, over this particular weekend, friends' parents would get around to it sometimes Sunday or maybe even Monday morning when they'd forgotten about it and they're like scrambling to get to work or scrambling to get to school, but not my old man. He would dial in all the clocks sometime in that afternoon, that Saturday, and then me and my brother would have to go to bed at the soon-to-be time. And it was, felt so unjust, so wrong. And so I would keep, my, I would keep my, my own little watch on my own time, just like stick it to the man. I know what time it is, old man. And... Um, but at the end, he still won. We still had to go to bed. And so I always found it strange that everything, all the analog clocks stated something different than, than what was actually seemed so real at that very moment. And, but today I get it. Today I get that what is coming means something for the now. There is something coming that's going to make right what seems so wrong right now. For my dad, the future shaped the present, and this is the heart of the Advent season. What we're doing is we're consciously, intentionally changing our internal clocks to the time of heaven, to a, to a future that, that shapes our reality, to a future that shapes our here and now. See, generally speaking, we say that our past determines our present. The decisions that you made, the decision that you made during your upbringing, who you associated with, where you were raised, what schooling that you went to, and so on and so forth. And while this is true in part for the Christian, we know that something greater is at work. And it's that the future shapes our present, and not only shapes it, but determines it, forms it, and molds it. 
For the one who hopes in Christ, it's not your past or your sin that ultimately defines you. For those who hope in Christ, it's not even your present struggles or the present brokenness of this world, but it's ultimately the future reality of God that will have the last word, that shapes who we are, that determines who we are. You look around at the world, it is set to Christmas time. I mean, we are like, this is something almost everyone just jumps headfirst into, Christmas time. And you'll see the lights, you'll see the music, you'll see families getting together, gifts being exchanged. These are all good things. But, but Advent is like a little bit different. Advent is actually going to call us to not stare initially into the light, but to stare into the darkness and to see something that's not necessarily there yet. And to hope when there is no appearance of hope. And Isaiah 64 is ideal for taking that posture. Isaiah 64 is what's known as a messianic a, a, a poem, a messianic expectation. And it's ideal for tuning our hearts and adjusting our minds to not simply what is, but to the promise of what's to come. And so for the remainder of this time, what I want to do is I want to ask this question. How do we live into this hope that is ours through Jesus Christ? How do we posture our lives, our family, and our community to live faithfully, not just in light of what's in front of us, but what's coming? The first thing, if you're taking notes, is this. Pray with fierceness. Pray with fierceness. Now, if you look back at your year, 2019, Chances are you experienced more angst, more anxiety, and more fear than you did overall joy. If you're the average person, you experience more angst and fear and overwhelm than you experienced joy. We have a lot of angst in our lives. We have a lot of anxiety in our families. We have a lot of angst in this world. And one of the really unfortunate ways that we as humanity express that angst is through outrage. In fact, a missiologist named Ed Stetzer, he wrote a book about this a few years ago, and in it, he talks about how we find ourselves in a culture of outrage, in an age of outrage, where this is where often people, and this is the way that people often express themselves. Think about it. There's a lot of rage right now in politics. There's a lot of rage in the workplace. There's a lot of rage online. There's a lot of rage on social media. Man, even... Even sometimes I'll like go on Yelp and there's rage in the review comment section. And I'm like, at the end of the day, this is a pizza joint. They serve pizza. They always, it's, it's pizza. They take up their just cause about deep dish. You've never been to New York, boy. Like, I'm just... Sometimes I'll read through in this almost always a mistake. Sometimes I'll read through the next door app. Jeez. And it could be helpful sometimes, but they're mixed in with, you know, like the request for a handyman and another sad picture of a lost chihuahua is the rage post. Rage about the HOA, rage about this neighbor, rage about the homeless issue, rage about so and so's neighbor that hasn't, or a fence that hasn't been painted, just on and on and on. And then what happens is the mob jumps in. One comment turns into like 65 comments in like 15 minutes. I'm like, I can't even keep up. To put it simply, things escalate very quickly in the 21st century, don't they? But Christians, on the other hand, are called by God to move beyond just simply contributing to an age of outrage to actually effectively engaging the issues that cause angst and outrage and longing. But the question for us, those of us as believers that still experience angst and still experience anxiety and still experience overwhelm and sometimes outrage and, and don't even know what to do with that, the question is, what do we do with that angst? What, what do we do when we feel our blood boiling? What do we do when we feel like lashing out and jumping in and joining the mob? Isaiah helps us to, to, to know what to do with it. Isaiah leads us to pray that rage, to pray with fierceness. Consider once again these first two verses. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. 
as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble in your presence. Now, we, we probably don't use that word rend very often. Like, honey, would you go rend that for me? Certainly, dear. What does rend mean? Rend is the same word that we find in the book of Genesis when Jacob is told that his beloved son Joseph has supposedly been killed. And what does he do? He rends his garments. Common day illustration, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Brother, rend the heavens. Go Hulk Hogan on the heavens, God. We're being guided to pray a fierce prayer here. And it's not for the faint of heart. And if it's not making you uncomfortable, you're not praying with enough fierceness. We're being guided to pray, oh God, would you tear apart the heavens and anything and everything that would stand between you and us and separate you from your, and us from your earth-shaking presence. He's saying, bring your power, bring your healing, bring your judgment, bring your justice, bring your wrath. Nothing shy of your fiery presence that boils water can break this cycle of evil in our presence. He's saying, break this thing open, man. Just shatter this thing open. Step into our mess and set things right. Your prayers may be a little too saintly. I know mine are. Isn't it funny the transformation that we go through when we pray, especially in public? We talk normal, and then we come into the prayer meeting, we straighten up, button our top button, begin to pray in the Queen's English. <laughs> Almighty Lord. Triune, of course. <laughs> Less saintly prayers, more Hulk Hogan prayers. That's the takeaway. Let's pray. Amen. Worship team, right? <laughs> question, I wonder how, I wonder what our public discourse would look like if we all, as God's people, learned to pray like this. I wonder if the way that we interacted publicly, online, in person, I wonder how significantly different it would if we entered into a posture of fierce prayer like this on a daily basis. Here's another question to consider. What would our emotional state look like? I have to imagine that our overwhelm, our anxiety, our fear, all these things that rob us of joy, all these things that rob us of hope, would look significantly different if we learn to pray with such fierceness. Pray with fierceness. Secondly, watch with openness. Watch with openness. As I mentioned earlier, Advent is about staring into the darkness to see with eyes of faith, watching and waiting for the appearing of God. What are you guys doing this Advent? We are watching. We're watching. We're setting our gaze above what we see to what's not here yet. But the question is, what are we looking for? And how are we going to know when we see it? See, one of the more unfortunate points of the Advent story of the Christmas narrative is that God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, God, flesh and blood, here among us, the theophany of theophanies, and by and large, the world missed it. Christ came, the invisible became visible, the unseeable God became seeable. And we missed it. Consider the words from the Gospel of John. John 1, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though he had made the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which is his own, his own people, but his own didn't even receive him. Jesus came and he wasn't recognized. And so the question that we need to consider is, will we recognize him as well? And will we receive him? I know I do the same thing you probably do. When we read the scriptures, we do it with a bit of snobbery. 
And we think of ourselves so highly. I would never make those mistakes. I would never grumble. I would never complain. I would never deny you like Peter. But at the end of the day, we are them. And the question is, will we and would we recognize him? When it comes to looking for the evidences of God in our lives, what ends up happening is that we create very, very narrow categories. God does this, God does that, but God, my God doesn't do that, and God would, would never do that. And I see God here, and I experience God like this, but I don't see God like that. I don't really experience God like these people over here. And sooner than later, we have this shrinking, very, very narrow window through which we view God. We, we place these expectations on him, and then we are blinded by those very expectations. Where is God? Outside your window. Outside your very narrow categories. In fact, I would venture to say that for many of us, these wrong expectations that we place on God are probably the root source of a lot of our disappointments, our disillusionment, and even our doubt in the faith. We're no longer seeking to be shaped in the image of God. We're seeking to shape God in our image. He loves who we love. He hates who we hate. He does what we tell him. And then we are absolutely crushed when we say jump and he doesn't jump. God, you really let me down. Listen to the words of Isaiah, verse 3. When you did awesome things that we didn't look for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. So what is Isaiah doing here? He is preparing us to expect the unexpected. We are not generally awestruck by things that we expected. I've never heard anyone ever say, oh my gosh, that was mind-blowing, that was the most amazing thing. It's exactly what I expected. It's generally that which exceeds our expectations, blows open our expectations that we call awesome. It's in that place that we're awestruck. And so the question we need to consider today is, do we want to experience the awesomeness of God? Because if the answer is yes, if you sing about the awesomeness of God and you hear about all these people proclaim the awesomeness of God and you're like, I don't experience the awesomeness of God, well, you've got to be willing to do something here. You have to be willing to put aside your expectations. You have to be willing to allow God to work on his timetable, not yours. You have to be willing for God to work according to his perfect will, not your imperfect will. Friend, at the end of the day, you got to be willing for God to be God. A fierce lion of the tribe of Judah who will not be tamed and refuses to fit in your little narrow categories. But friend, at the end of the day, you don't want the God that fits in your little cage. You don't want the God that fits in your little window. That God does not satisfy. That God does not save. That God does not heal. You got to be willing for God to blow open those categories. This is what Advent does. It's not just rending the heavens. It's rending our dreams. Our dreams have to be torn in two, die, be buried, and then raised anew in Jesus Christ. Advent is us bringing our expectations to God, as unsafe as it may feel, and say, have your way. And what it does is it reminds us that the beauty and the glory and the radiance of God himself was found in the least likely, least expected place. God incarnate placed in a feeding trough, born to an unwed teenage girl. Do you think anyone was looking for God there? Do you think that met anyone's expectations of how God works in the world? Watch with openness and live into the hope of a God that does awesome things that you didn't necessarily look for. Third, wait with faithfulness. 
Wait with faithfulness. Now, I'm sure you've heard variations of this old phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Right? Like, God meets us in the middle. I do my part. God does his. And sadly, this is, a, this is sort of the feel that Christianity had for me for many years growing up, that I, I'll meet God in the middle. I do my part. I got to do my, and then he does his, his bit. But, but listen, listen to how the scriptures describes God, describe God's interaction with us. Verse 4, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who what? Wait for him. Reality Ventura, what are we doing? We are waiting. That doesn't seem like much. That, does, that hardly seems like something God would be pleased with. Waiting. The unrivaled God is one who helps those who wait for him. Now, we typically think of a life of waiting as a life of lack. If you're waiting, you're waiting on something, and you therefore are not complete. You are not whole. You're waiting for the opportunity. You're waiting for the relationship. You're waiting for that call-up, and until you are, you lack. The Bible flips the script and actually tells us the opposite is true. Life is lacking if it's not marked by waiting. Because God works his abundance for those who wait. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Sometimes, sometimes waiting can be one of the hardest things to do in the entire world. Can I get an amen? Oh my gosh. Waiting. And it's not because waiting calls us to exert all this energy for God. It's not like we've got to go do, 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 do or anything like that. No, it's hard because it means that we've got to refuse to act apart from God. It's hard because it means that we have to acknowledge our limitation. It's hard because it means that we lack what is required to simply fix our situation. We lack the wherewithal to heal this world and even heal our own lives. It's hard because it means that we are not in control. The one who waits is the one who is surrendered to another. And this is, this is difficult because it's simultaneously a death blow to our pride. Everything that's human in us fights against waiting, and yet it is the key, hear me, the key to Christian formation. It's everything we hate the most, and yet everything that God desires most for our lives. And therefore, it becomes the hostile ground of a waging war to wait. An author named W.H. Van Stone once described waiting as this. He said, waiting is the agonizing tension between hope and dread, stretched and almost torn apart between two dramatically different anticipations. I don't know your life. I don't know a lot of your stories, but I do know the one thing that probably binds all of us together is we're waiting for something. Waiting is the human experience. Think about waiting to make sure that your child makes it home safe and okay on their first day of school. Think about that, that waiting as you've sent off that really important email and you don't know how it's going to be received and a couple days go by and you're, you're thinking all the worst possibilities. Think about waiting as you're desiring to hear back on that job application. Let's get a little bit more serious. Think about sitting in that waiting room as you're waiting from the res for the results from the oncologist. Praying for the best, but everything within us bracing for the worst. And it's into that tension that God has called us, and it's not easy. Again, waiting is not for the faint of heart. But it's in this tension of waiting that the Christian is being formed and forged. It's in the pressure of hanging in the balance, hanging in there, that we become who God has intended us to be. We're told elsewhere in scriptures in the book of Lamentations that the Lord is good to those who wait for him. 
But every time I've always read that, I've always thought to myself, what good is waiting? What good is waiting? What good is waiting ever brought me? Isaiah tells us that God acts, or if you have the NIV, God works for those who wait on him. The word here can actually be translated prepare, which brings to life something really, really beautiful here. That it, it, what Isaiah is showing us is that God is preparing something in and for those who wait. And for many of us, we're waiting on God to do something. Again, that's what binds us all together. Maybe it's a prayer for a loved one. Maybe it's like I read on the, the, these beautiful notes on the floor. It's prayer for someone to get saved or a family to get saved. Maybe it's prayer for a relationship to be healed, a prayer to enter into a relationship. Maybe it's prayer for a job or for an opportunity or for physical healing or freedom from a struggle or an addiction. We're waiting for God to work in our lives and we are joining that long lineage of God's people saying, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord? And so what Isaiah reminds us is that God is actually working in your waiting. Listen to how one author put it. There is actually something happening while nothing is happening. Pause there. Think about how significantly different our lives would look if we latched onto just that first phrase. There is something happening while nothing is happening. God uses waiting to change us. That miserable, uncomfortable, sometimes painful state of silence is one of God's most powerful tools to set us free, if we are willing, that is. And I get it, you may not be willing. There have been seasons in my life where I just wasn't sure I was willing to either. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking, and this is what I think too. I'm a pragmatist. So does that mean that when we're waiting, we just do nothing? Let go, let God, whatever. Just take a very static, relaxed sort of posture towards this waiting. Look at me in verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. There is hope and there is joy found in our waiting as we press forward in faithfulness. The experience of hope that's being described here is discovered in active waiting. The life of the believer is one of perseverance. We're pressing forward. I'm pressing toward the goal. I, don't, I can't make sense of my surrounding. I, I really don't see anything in front of me, but I'm pressing on because I know it's coming. It's a persevering waiting. It's a moving forward in hope. It's a God-seeking waiting. Fourth and finally, how do we live into this hope? We need, we need to repent in humbleness. Back in the uh, 20th century, early 20th century, the Times in London was compiling uh, this, this, this piece from a number of authors, and what they were seeking to do is answer this question, what is wrong with this world? And so they asked a number of well-known authors to contribute toward this. And what they, what they did is they reached out to an author, a famous author at the time named G.K. Chesterton. And I'm sure they were familiar with his works. He was witty and yet profound. And so they, they, they write him and they say, please contribute, answer to this question, what's wrong with this world? And his answer is so profound and yet simple. His response was this, dear sirs, I am. Your sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with this world? That's easy. Me. Me. Advent welcomes us to be brutally honest about the evil that's in this world without apology. I find Advent to be a really uh, refreshing time because we can, we can acknowledge, man, things are crazy. Things are really broken. And it gives vent for that. But it seems to me that we are not fully ready to talk about the evils of this world until we're first willing to acknowledge the evil within. 
And so we're first willing to acknowledge the answer to the question, I am what's wrong with this world. This may be one of the more painful challenges of Advent. Self-awareness is probably one of our biggest weaknesses as people. And again, this is not for the faint of heart. This is challenging, confronting things that are within is no small task. And there are a number of things that we, we probably are considering as we come to the end of this year, as we're looking forward toward a new year. 2020 brings all new, fresh possibilities. And so there are a number of things that we're probably willing to just push down and neglect for another year. I've got this addiction. I've got this sin. I've got this darkness, but I'm still in control. It's not like really taking me over. I'm still functioning. I'm still able to hold it together and keep my job and have a family and serve at work and sing and on and on. But this calls us to, to acknowledge honestly and with hope the evil within that darkness within. And here's why it's important. Because as John English put it, those things that we cannot accept about ourselves, we project upon others. If I don't admit my shadow side, I will unconsciously find another who will carry my shadow for me. I can only speak for myself, but the things that bug me most about the world are the things that I am unwilling to accept about myself. All my greatest pet peeves reflect the inner struggle that I feel defeated by. The things that I would rather repress and keep in the dark. What we can't accept about ourselves, we will project on others. This is widely agreed upon. And what I guess I'm saying is that the world will get even darker when we begin to drape our own sin over it. And in the process we may even forfeit the mercy that God has extended to us. This passage begins by acknowledging their, their adversaries, Israel's adversaries, the nations that rage. It's a very bold, fierce request that God would come down and that he would make the people tremble. This is a very much like sick em God prayer. Break them, God. Sick them. Deal with them. They're evil, they're sinful, they're the worst. Fix, just, just go fix this evil problem. But it's almost as if mid-poem, Isaiah has this like light coming on, realization, oh no moment. Because if God comes to judge the wicked and God is angry with sin and evil in this world, then what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? Verse 5, behold, you were angry and we sinned. Oh, no. In our sins, we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? He begins to answer. He begins to ask questions about his previous prayers. Wait, the coming of the Lord, that's only good news for the blameless. That's not good news for sinners. That is potentially terrifying. Oh, no, I just asked for the wrong thing and I am in too deep now. Yeah, that whole prayer, that whole fierce rending the heavens thing. God, let, let's ignore that. I, I, I prefer your loving side. Isaiah asked a really good question. How can we be saved? That seems to be the question that sort of repeats throughout the scripture. On the day of Pentecost, they come to Peter after he's preached the gospel. How do, how do we get saved? Verse 6, we've all become like one who is unclean. And all our unrighteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In other words, even our best selves are distorted. Even our best versions of ourselves, which we're in church, so I'm probably getting like the best version of you today. Even that's not enough. The church going you is not enough. The tithe giving you is not enough. The song singing you, it's not enough. The missions endeavoring you, it's not enough. There, there is no hope found within ourselves. The darkness of this world gets even darker as we begin to look inward for the light. So then what hope is there? 
verse 8 through 9. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Here's what Isaiah is leading us to see, and it's this, that hope is found when we come to God for healing. Hope is found in repentance and faith. The question that resounds throughout the scriptures, how are we saved, is responded with the same resounding statement, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And the ongoing hope, the ongoing hope that we require as believers in this journey comes to us, is found when we are reminded of who God is. He says, you are our Father, and our hope is filled. And that hope is replenished again as we're reminded of who we are. We are your people. We are your sons. We are your daughters. We are your beloved. We are those who are chosen by you and graced by you. We are your redeemed. We are those who you raised from the dead. We are those who you called into your family. We are those who you've united in your Holy Spirit. We are your people. And hope is revived. So here's the heart of the Christian Christmas Advent message. That Christ came incarnate into this world to save sinners like you and me. Jesus fulfilled God's requirement for us. Jesus is the only blameless one that had the ability to pray a prayer like this with zero trepidation. Jesus, the blameless one, satisfied the just anger of God on the cross. He broke the power of sin over us. He raised for our justification. He raised for our new life and our freedom. And the Bible gives us a promise to hang on to. Our hope is not this abstract something. It's substance. It's like an anchor that we throw into Christ that Jesus is coming again. And the Bible says, stake your everything on that. Faith, hope, it's not just intellectual sin. It's not like I can get behind that. Faith and hope is putting all our chips in on Christ. My life, my job, my family, my well-being, my comfort, my future, my eternity. I'm going all in on Jesus. And for those who hope... And for those who are hidden in Christ and forgiven by his grace, now we too can join with a long lineage of faith. We can join in what has been called the ancient angst of Israel that's being expressed here in Isaiah. And we can cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. We can cry out, rend the heavens and come. We can lift our eyes to the heaven and say, break this thing open and come and get this. We can join with our hallelujah, the cry of Maranatha, and we can do it with zero trepidation. We can do it with zero fear of punishment because of the hope and the confidence and the joy that is ours in Jesus Christ. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The Lord has come. The Lord came, and he's coming again. In conclusion, what I want to do is I want to read a a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer over us, and then what I'll do is I'll pray, and we'll go to our time of response. Here's his words. Look up, you whose gaze is fixed on this earth, who are spellbound by the little events and changes on the face of the earth. Look up to these words, you who have turned away from heaven disappointed. Look up, you whose eyes are heavy with tears and who are crying over the fact that the earth has gracelessly torn us away. Look up, you who are burdened with guilt and cannot lift their eyes. Look up, your redemption is drawing near. Something different from what you see daily will happen. Just be aware. Be watchful. Wait, just another short moment. Wait, and something quite new will break over you. God will come.
come. Reality Ventura, for those who hope in Christ, no matter how dark things get, your future is bright. Your future is bright. Stare into the darkness and greet that awaiting and arriving light. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of your scriptures. I want to thank you right now that Christmas is not a feel-good, sentimental season, but it's, a, it's one of toughness and challenge and difficulty, and, let, and yet you meet us there in that moment, Lord. You meet us in, this, in the wrestle. As I was teaching through this passage, this service, as I was reading this scripture, I, I envisioned in my mind Jacob and the angel of the Lord wrestling in the night. <clears throat> and here we are, struggling it out. It's tense. And Lord, we, we, we want to cry out like Jacob, I'm not letting go until you bless me. You have plunged us into a struggle with this passage, Lord. You have, in a way, you've broken things open. You, you've, you, we've, we've dove right into the, the mess of our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet us there in the struggle. And I pray that you would strengthen us for this struggle, strengthen us for this fight, strengthen us for this Christian journey, God. Where we have lost hope, Lord, would you fill us with hope once again? Where we are flooded with disappointments and disillusionment and even doubts about who you are and who we are in Jesus Christ, Lord, would you replace those with faith and hope today? Would you break open our unnecessary, unrealistic expectations of you. Lord, we confess together, you exceed our expectations. You are a great God. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what our God has done for those who wait. Lord, we ask that you would lift our eyes beyond our expectation, lift our eyes beyond our disappointments to see Jesus. And there flood us with hope. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we have the opportunity to respond. Um, there are a number of ways to respond. There's carpets up here where we can come and posture ourselves before the Lord. There's nothing inherently holy or sacred in the act of kneeling so much as it's a posture of our body that, that sort of orients our hearts as, uh, in surrender towards God. Waiting puts us outside of control, and bowing postures us in that place. And so I'd like to call you forward to just bow before the Lord as an acknowledgement. I'm waiting for you, and you are worth the wait. There's going to be teams on my right and left to pray with you this morning. And then for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to come to the Lord's table to, to be reminded of Christ's sacrifice, his body broken, his blood shed for us. And as we do so, it's not just looking back and what, to what Jesus has done, but the scriptures say every time that we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are declaring Christ's death until his return. So let it orient our hearts towards the future of Christ's return for his church. Amen? Let's respond.